The book of Ecclesiastes is pretty much uh, the journal of a very well-resourced and educated and powerful king whose goal it is during this venture to find some sort of sense of satisfaction uh, in life without God at the center of it, right? He's trying to figure out a way to live life joyfully and meaningfully without God at the center. And chapter after chapter, you find out that he doesn't make it very far. He becomes very frustrated with the stuff that he tries to use to feel meaningful, right? And so he basically lets us know that a lot of things in life that a lot of people think count a lot don't, as, don't count as much as they think they do, right? Um, and today, uh, what we're going to be talking about is uh, kind of the, the flaws in the way humans normally try to value each other, right? The comparison-based system of uh, valuing humans doesn't work well. There's a lot of holes in it, and we're going to talk about how our truest identity, the realest thing about each individual human being, is what the creator of the human says about them, right? The love of God is what makes us most important, not where we stack up in society as far as like status symbols and responsibilities go. So that's going to be the big thing we're talking about today. So Solomon uh, starts out on Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 4, uh, and he says that a living dog is better than a dead lion, okay? And uh, if anybody's had any experience with ego in their lifetime, like I think all men, okay, maybe some ladies too, I don't know. Um, when I read this, I think, um, is he praising cowardice? Like it sounds like he's saying it's better to stay alive uh, with low dignity rather than to give your life to serve a cause. And I don't think that he's saying that at all. The rest of scripture would disagree with that. Scripture calls us to lay down our lives for the Lord, for our friends. It's the highest act of love, and love is what is most meaningful, right? So that's definitely not what this is saying. What this is saying is that a dog is alive, a dog can experience the world, and the world is truly, truly a miracle. And if you had the choice between having a short life and a lot of people think you're awesome or not really stack up and be impressive in society, but you can experience the world that God has made as the miracle that it is, that's the more fortunate situation, okay? And so uh, this really came home to, uh, for me deeply when I was a student at Southeastern University. I was a college student. And uh, I've said this before on prior messages, but the reason I love the book of Ecclesiastes so much is that a big part of my journey as a Christian in college was trying to find some way to make my life meaningful. I wanted to give my life to something that counted, right? And uh, so I was really crying out for the Lord. There's a lot of despair, a lot of cynicism, and that's a serious motivator to really invest all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength into the Lord, right? And so I developed this habit of uh, walking around campus in the evening and praying. And it became a, a very deeply ingrained habit, and I had done this hundreds of times throughout being there. And uh, on one particular night, I was probably a sophomore or a junior, and I uh, get to the soccer field. It's about 11.30 at night. I had been praying for a little while, and lay down under the soccer field, and I'm looking at the dark sky and all the stars in the sky, okay? And at the time, uh, I was in a philosophy class where the takeaway I was getting to as a result of this class was that a lot of us take the universe for granted. Like, we just take stuff as like, yeah, it's cool, it's there. But scientists would agree and theologians would agree that, look, at one point, the universe we take for, for granted, it just didn't exist. There were no physical things at all. There was no gas, there was no atoms, there was no pebbles or stars, sophisticated or not, there's no living thing. And 
I kept running through my head as I would walk around campus and I'm taking classes. Look, if at one point in the history of the universe we take for granted, there was no physical matter at all. There was nothing. Just there was nothing. And then at some point, for any reason, somehow there's a pebble, there's a speck of dirt, anything physical in a place where at one point there was nothing, that is impossible. That is impossible. That is a miracle. I don't know what to do with it. Uh, scientists try to explain it, but there is no, look, the creator did it. I mean, just, it's, it's a miracle, right? We've never seen a situation where you find something uh, just appear out of thin air. This is wild stuff, but this is the life we have. It appeared through the words of God when at one point there was nothing, okay? And so I'm walking around at all times just in awe that anything exists, that I'm alive to appreciate it, whatever. And on this particular night, land beneath the stars, and I'm thinking, those things, at least you can read, Google says, that uh, they're so far away, these stars, that it takes years sometimes for the light to reach us. That is really, really, really far away, okay? Meaning space is really huge because light travels, again, Wikipedia, okay, uh, says that light travels at 186,000 miles per second, I think. Really, really fast, serious distance. We live in this unbelievably amazing universe. And it's just getting to me. And I'm thinking, I'm in awe of this, right? And then I notice that the grass is kind of tickling my hand on the soccer field and think, okay, this is alive, right? I mean, pebbles, when there used to be none, is a miracle. Grass that grows and spreads and takes advantage of water and can be eaten by animals. We're talking a different level of miracle now because this stuff is alive, right? That's impossible. A pebble's impossible. Stars, grass, this is... This is mind-blowing stuff. This will put you in awe of God if you allow yourself to really dwell on it for a little while. And then finally, I realized that to even have this experience at all, to be able to look at this as a being with a mind who did not ask to be created, who did not ask to be a part of this miracle that we're in, for me to look at all this stuff and even be moved in awe, that is a miracle, right? And so here's the deal. We live under miracles in the star, we walk on miracles, which is the ground, and we experience it with the miracle of consciousness, right? We are in this situation that should be mind-blowing to us if we have any humility at all. And so you may have heard the psalm that says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, right? This is pretty famous. And uh, no doubt, I've always thought it's, it's wonderful to be alive. Sure, we're wonderfully made. Fearfully never made any sense to me until I have this experience and realize I am a guest in a very powerful creator's universe and I just need to know my place, right? Um, and so the thing is, beyond uh, just being impressed with all the stuff, the sunsets, the grass, the plants, beyond just being impressed with it, these are all signposts that point to the glory of God, right? Scripture says that the miracles around us uh, speak of the glory of God and so I think what's really helpful when we read this scripture that says to be a living dog is better than a dead lion is to say, because we are in this miracle, because we did not ask to be a part of it, it would be an utter waste of time. It would be a waste of your consciousness. It would be tragic for us to be constantly paying attention to who has a nicer car than me or whose hair looks better than me or who has a better job than me when we could be experiencing this awe-giving universe that we're in, okay? So... Uh, the last few years, uh, I think I realized that uh, my love languages, uh, two of the primary ones, are receiving food of any kind. Um, there's usually a disproportionately thankful response for any food, even rice. Rachel can tell you. She gave me a 20-pound 
bag of rice the other day and it made my week, okay? And, uh, but beyond that, uh, talking about Seinfeld episodes, okay? So if anybody, we could be buddies if you appreciate an episode, okay? And so I'm getting some amens on something, all right. And, uh, but anyway, as absurd and silly and trivial as this show is, uh, on this one particular episode, Jerry was pretending to be married to his girlfriend so that she could get a dry cleaning discount. That's about as deep as it gets, okay? Um, but in this one particular scene, this dialogue with him and his fake wife in the coffee shop, I think explains the situation that all humans find ourselves in, okay? Jerry is enjoying pretending to be married, so he raises his coffee cup and says, to my beautiful wife, and she says, to my adoring husband, and he says, adoring? Why not handsome? And she says, I like adoring. And he goes, well, of course, adoring is great for you, but what's it do for me? And uh, I think that situation, asking ourselves, what does it do for human beings to be adoring, truly? What, how does our quality of life and our energy and our joy improve when we believe that the primary purpose of our life is to adore the one who created us? rather than to try to impress everybody else and have them remark about how successful we are or for some reason being notable, uh, to be adoring rather than to be adored is a way better way to live our lives, right? The chief end of humankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To be adoring is what we were created for, right? So that's what it does, right? Someone should have told him on the show. But uh, so beyond understanding that the creator knows our true value, and it is eternally more significant than whatever else our standing is. Um, as much sense as that makes, that your creator gets to name you more than we get to make a name for ourselves. it's also gonna be important for us to kind of critique the current system of humans evaluating one each, other, each other's value, okay? And so Solomon does this. He gets really irritated at his attempt to try to make some valuing system of humans. He really tries and keeps getting irritated that it never works because he's being honest about this. He's being serious about this. And so there's three verses I'm gonna talk about that kind of deconstruct and challenge the current way of seeing some people as more important or valuable than each other, okay? So on the bulletins, on point two, it shows Ecclesiastes uh, chapter nine, verse 11. And Solomon writes, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to us all. That is very, very annoying, right? But time and chance happen to us all. This is a very important point. This is one of the reasons that any system that tries to say one person is more valuable than another um, is flawed, because opportunities are not equally spread. They're just not. So we may have some uh, people in here who are big Apple computer fans, and so you may not like uh, Bill Gates a lot, but I'm gonna say something nice about him, okay? Um, I'm not saying he's an angel or something, but I will say I admire a few things. And one is that uh, he's spending a lot of mental energy and financial uh, power to relieve human suffering all over the world. I mean, like he's wiping out malaria in different places. And uh, the author, Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote a book called Outliers, who I took some of this stuff from, says that he thinks 200 years from now, there's gonna be statues of Bill Gates because he will have saved hundreds of thousands of very preventable diseases, right? So this is, this is great. Um, so I'll start like that. And then secondly, um, I really, really admire the guy's work ethic, right? I don't know anybody in the world who doesn't admire work ethic. And so when Bill Gates was a teenager, uh, he snuck out of his house in the middle of the night 
to go to the college and program this computer that he had access to um, in the middle of the night. Would come back home, sneak into his house. His parents didn't know he was gone. Um, that's, that's not like most teenagers, right? Uh, you may have remembered being one. I like to sleep even now, definitely, as a teenager. Waking up on time rarely happens. Getting up in the middle of the night to work on something you don't get paid for is extreme, right? That is, that is the sort of person we should reward financially, and he should have a certain amount of authority and opportunity to lead an industry, for sure. I'm not taking anything away from that. But in the book, Outliers, uh, he talks about how time and chance happened to Bill Gates, and this is important to keep in mind. So on, the, on one level, when it comes to time, uh, the author talked about people who had been billionaires were very, very successful in the United States in certain industries, and what is notable is a lot of them were born within a few years of each other. And so time happens to them. And in this case, Gladwell will say, Bill Gates was the perfect age to pounce on the computing industry as it was developing in a way where he could really take a hold of the whole thing. So there were guys older than him who knew more about computers, but they were probably having a full teaching load and had families and weren't thinking about creating huge companies, right? And guys who are 12 years old and also know a lot about computers don't get to run big companies, right? So his age perfectly positioned him, and then in another way, chance happened to him, okay? Again, his work ethic should be rewarded, it's admirable, uh, but there weren't a lot of those computers in the world at that time at all, definitely not very many within walking distance that a teenager could go and use, right? There could have been hundreds of thousands of other boys and girls of all ethnicities who would have loved to jump in and just didn't have the opportunity for a lot of reasons. One of them being there's just not a, a lot of availability of this stuff, right? And so he did maximize the opportunity and he should be rewarded, but we have to keep in mind that time and chance happen to him. So. When I was talking through this with Nick Slade, he was talking about being on a missions trip to Kenya. And uh, there's a young man there with uh, no arms, but he was able to create these really impressive drawings of different stuff with his feet. That's, that's really admirable, that's very creative. He's overcome some obstacles. And Nick said, if that guy's in the United States, he becomes YouTube famous and then he gets on TV and he's gonna do well, right? That talent if it is exposed to the greater public, he becomes really successful. And he says, but the kid is in Kenya. Time and chance happen to him. He is in a place where certain opportunities just are not gonna come his way. Uh, Warren Buffett, who was extremely excess, uh, successful investor, gave $30 billion to Bill Gates to wipe out some diseases. Uh, another admirable guy, very good work ethic, very wise man. Uh, he says, when I was born in 1930, the odds were probably 40 to 1 against me being born in the United States. I did win the ovarian lottery on that first day. And on top of that, I was male. Put that down as another 50-50 shot, and now the odds are 80 to 1 against being born a male in the United States. And this was enormously important to my life. He's like 80-something, and he's, he's letting us know this stuff. He says, to think that any of this makes me superior superior to anyone else as a human is just, I cannot follow that line of reasoning. He's got this beautiful humility that just shows that he has perspective that I hope that I can gain more of, right? So, the first reason that it's just gonna be a mistake to, to compare the value of one human to another 
uh, is because opportunities just aren't spread out. And in some places, you can maximize them. In some, others, there are in some other places, there's obstacles that others don't have. So this is one important reason. But then secondly, uh, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 15, uh, he says, but uh, he tells the story of a city that was uh, being attacked. It was being threatened by a greater power. And he says, in this city, there was found a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. And we can imagine how frustrating that's ever been if you've done something and not gotten the credit for it, right? A boss comes and takes credit, or someone you work with takes credit. When we don't get the credit for what we've done, it's deeply frustrating. And Solomon sees this and says, the guy's a hero and nobody cares about what he did. There's a lot of people who have done things that we just never hear about. So, first, opportunities don't come equally to everybody. Secondly, many who deserve honor don't get it. That's another reason this whole valuing system, one to another, it just doesn't work if we're being intellectually honest, okay? A few years ago, uh, Karen and I were at Southeastern University as staff people. I got to teach a little bit, and she worked there. And we got to drive students from Lakeland, Florida to Atlanta, Georgia, where they had the Catalyst Conference. It's for uh, pastors and business people and writers and stuff. And they had some really excellent speakers. It was a very enjoyable time. And uh, one of the people who spoke was a guy that I, I appreciate named uh, Dave Ramsey. He's a, uh, a finance coach who's an evangelical Christian, and he's done a lot of good stuff for a lot of people, no doubt. And... Uh, before I go on, I want to say as a pastor, I get nervous anytime is a someone's a financial coach and tells you to hustle and stack up the cash and stuff without also warning you that the love of money is the root of all evil. We have to be on guard against all forms of greed. Every now and then, he'll have an attitude that makes me nervous. But beyond those qualifications, the guy deserves a medal from the White House as far as I'm concerned because there's hundreds of thousands of people in the United States that he's led out of really crushing terrible debt. Uh, there have been marriages that have been saved by going by what he has to talk about because they stopped fighting about money. I know a lady back home who came to the Lord, became a Christian as a result of hearing some of his teaching at a church. Okay, so the guy's done incredible work. The government's not getting people out of debt, all right? Uh, no one has the record he has in doing this really great thing for a lot of people. And so I, I think he's a hero. I think he deserves recognition. And uh, at Catalyst, he gives a good talk. And uh, at these conferences, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of lights that flash and, and you know, stuff to get you excited. And they told us that there's going to be this other celebrity, right, this Christian celebrity who's going to come out and say a few things, and people are buying into the hype, and you see this guy come out with a beard, okay, and uh, he's known for sayings like, you're on fire, like donut grease, okay. Um, he says, some people say, I'm a dreamer. Others say, if you fall asleep at work again, we're going to have to let you go. Um, he also shows some insight into culture by saying, a redneck walking into a Bass Pro Shop gets more excited than a 12-year-old girl at a Justin Bieber concept, concert. Okay? Um, yeah, Uncle Cy, with all of his camouflage and beard and Tupperware cup. It's on Duck Dynasty. It's a show that I don't know if it's still on anymore. But um, At the time, he was famous for 15 minutes, right? He shows up at this thing. He gets interviewed. And people are laughing, they enjoy it. And to be honest with you, but between Dave Ramsey or Uncle Cy, I'd probably want to hang out with Uncle Cy because he's going to blow something up, he's funny, um, Ramsey will make me feel guilty about my budget, all this kind of stuff. But um, Uncle Cy's cool, and uh, there's a break after this, right? So I go outside, take a walk, 
and turn to my left and notice out of this big arena that there's this book signing table, right? And there's this, you know, maybe group of 30, 40 people, and Dave Ramsey's there. I see the baldness and the glasses and the big shoulders. I'm like, oh, that's him over there. He's signing books. That's cool. So these, I imagine people standing in line are saying, I just want to thank you so much for your consistent voice and your leadership. Uh, you helped my life so much. Like, you've changed the trajectory of our family. This is big stuff, right? Then I keep walking a little bit further and notice there's this crowd of people, this large crowd of people that's held together through those little placeholders, the stanchions, the, the ribbon stuff, the whole people in line. And then the line of people goes all the way down the road. And I don't see the end of this line. And I think... Uncle Cy writes books? I mean, I guess that's what's happening here is this is his book line, right? And at that moment, I thought, again, I'd rather blow something up with Uncle Cy, but he does not deserve a book line longer than the guy that's made this serious impact on so many families all over the country, right? And so at that moment, as somebody who was teaching at the school and someone who was going into a helping profession like ministry, I thought, just remember this forever, right? Uh, you're not doing this to be recognized or, you know, appreciated. This has to be worship, or you may be irritated with people at some point, right? So all of our jobs are supposed to be worship uh, to the Lord. I do think Ramsey can go to bed satisfied with his work, even though Cy had a longer book line, but this illustrates the point that many times, sometimes people get more credit than they deserve. Other people don't get as much credit as they do deserve, right? So, and then third, in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 6, Solomon laments, he is frustrated, that sometimes foolishness, folly, or shameful behavior is set in many high places. Meaning, in places we thought everybody was good and trustworthy, you got some bad apples, okay? Um, many times, uh, people in the comparison-based system of trying to one-up their neighbor, or at least trying to keep up with the crowd, we will join institutions that we consider valid, or impressive, or prestigious, okay? And so, so someone will go to a certain school because they think they get to say that for the rest of their life or they get to have a certain job to say, well, yeah, I'm doing this, right? This is one very common means of us trying to improve our status uh, in the whole comparison game thing. And I think a really great and innocent example of this uh, is uh, a man who became pretty high-ranking in the Marine Corps and was interviewed and he basically said that he decided to be a Marine when he was five years old. And it was when he was in the living room with his dad, and his dad is watching the evening news, and the newsman says that the president is sending in the Marines, okay, to, I believe it was Vietnam. And when the dad heard the newsman say this, the Marines are getting sent in, his dad responded, that'll be the end of that soon, okay? And the boy hears that his dad, who he esteems and looks up to, esteems this other group of people who he believes can get things done, there's no problem they can't solve, and as a five-year-old, his instincts are saying, I want to be the kind of person that my dad would esteem, right? And so, I mean, that's a perfect example of like what runs so many of us, even on a subconscious level, okay? The problem is that every single human institution, if it's religious, if it's educational, whether it's law enforcement, uh, medicine, business, every important institution is made up of people who are imperfect. And people get in sometimes uh, even though they really shouldn't be there, okay? So if you, uh, I don't know if any of us ever seen the movie Caddyshack, but that's pretty, uh, that's a telling situation. I got a clip for you here. Whoops, a dance of the living dead. <laughs> Ever Hughes, true 
is that disgusting man over there? I tell you, I never saw dead people smoke before. Guest of the Scots. What do you say we bust up this joint, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you two should get a room, you know? Hey, Ringo, play something hot, will you? And you guys, take some more lessons. Those eyeballs, I don't know how you can look at those eyeballs and not laugh, but anyway, so this happens eventually, right? And if it's as something is, you know, not particularly important as the exclusivity of a country club, when someone gets in there with a plaid jacket and no volume control, right, that's not a real serious problem for the world. But when ministry, right, when the church gets uh, ministers who are self-serving, uh, when law enforcement or medicine or business have takers rather than people who self-sacrificially give, it begins to really hurt the institution, right? And it becomes less trustworthy. And so uh, Groucho Marx, a comedian with an excellent mustache, said one time that uh, I don't want to belong to any club that would accept me as a member, right? And so what he's saying is if, uh, if this club doesn't realize, you know, how unimpressive I am, and they let me in, how am I supposed to be impressed with them, right? And so I think that to some degree, to have an awareness that human institutions are made up of imperfect people, um, and they require accountability and critique, sometimes prophetic voice. We need to keep them, they're there for a reason, they do a lot of good stuff, but they are made of people, then we can serve those institutions and maximize their benefit Right? rather than trust them to give us a sense of significance and therefore be held hostage to them. Right? Uh, they need our stewardship. Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, is a, a Russian writer who escaped political prison over in Russia, and he said this thing that has really helped me, I think, gain a more accurate view of humanity. Right? He says that the line between good and evil is not between us and them, right? between goods and good or excuse me, between groups of people, it says the line between good and evil runs down the middle of each human heart. This is really important to keep in mind. The people that run institutions can go either way. We all need help. We all need community. And so to have the idea that our significance comes from uh, a system that compares when opportunities are not spread out equally, um, when some people get more credit than others, when others don't as much, think we can have a healthy lack of belief in that current system of comparison, okay? Which then we get to question our attitude. What is status for, right? That's the question we have to, because it is important. Institutions are important. We need to steward this stuff. But uh, it gets us in position to ask what we expect it to do for us and how we can use it to make the world a better place and follow the Lord. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 7, uh, we see Solomon's frustration about the way things work sometimes when it comes to status. Uh, and he says, I have seen slaves on horses, or places of honor, and I've seen princes walking on the ground like slaves. And I think we are in the position now, as it's coming to a critical point, to say we can follow King Solomon's path to misery or King Jesus' path to joy, right? Because Jesus, as a king, outranks Solomon, and their ideas of what status is for are as opposite as they possibly could be. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He is the captain of his 12, right, his 12 disciples. No one wonders if he's the authority in the room, and with all of his authority and all of his, estat all of his status, he bends down and begins to take the most 
undignified job around, saying, I have my status and my power in order to serve, and that's the path that people who follow Jesus uh, take. We realize that we can do this, right? We can use whatever interests, opportunities, status, means, whatever we have as interpreting them not as something that makes us important anymore, because we get that from Jesus, and take all of those resources, whatever they are, and say, these are going to be assets in the hand of God through his kingdom, through my management, okay? So because Jesus knows who he is, he knows who he is, his identity is deeply believed and deeply understood, it empowers him to serve with the risk of being misunderstood, with the risk of thinking that he's less than he is. He's not wasting time trying to prove himself. He's spending his time redeeming it, loving people who really, really need it. He talked about how the first would be last eventually and the last will be first. And I don't think that that's a revenge thing where he's saying, I am going to humiliate you guys. I think what he's saying is the system you've bought into was an illusion the whole time. When I come, the lights go on and you're going to see how valuable people really are and why they're so valuable. Okay? On, uh, on the bulletin point number six, it says uh, the attitude we can have uh, when we're free not to prove ourselves, when we turn the equities we have, the skills, the status, into means of service rather than means of uh, self-promotion. Solomon says, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. And what he's talking about is stewarding the things in our lives, right? Title, status, interest, opportunities are given to us to serve neighbors in whatever sphere of influence we actually have, okay? Um, so I think this is, this is really the most joyful way to live. This is the way that our neighbors are going to flourish the most. Societies need people who are willing to do this. Churches need people who are willing to say, I'm going to serve and not be concerned with proving myself. So I'm going to have a little confession time here. Uh, from learning some of this stuff the hard way. Um, one of the reasons that I love the ability to be a disciple of Jesus, a student of Jesus, is because it allows for a lot of failure along the way, right? Um, when you understand I'm a student of Jesus, I'm a disciple, you're not claiming to have anything perfect, you're claiming to be on the path to figuring it out, okay? And so I'm going to share one of my mistakes. And, uh, but at Southeastern, when I was a student, like I said, I was trying to make my life count. Like I really wanted to dedicate my energies um, and whatever I could use to benefit the world, make my life meaningful. And so um, at the time, um, I was studying, I, I finished studying in ministry too, but that's what I've, I figured that's gonna really help. That's gonna use my gifts, it's gonna put me in position to think about things that I wanna think about, produce things that I wanna produce. And so I'm at a ministry retreat and uh, it's for freshman small group leaders. And so we all go out, there's about 80 of us, and uh, we're doing a testimony time, and people are praying, and people are sharing what the Lord's done in their lives, and it was a good time. And so someone's talking about how the Lord led, from, led them through an anxious time, or helping him kick a temptation they couldn't get rid of before, led them through their parents' divorce, all this kind of stuff. And then one young lady, uh, you know, gets the mic, and picture... Uh, who played the, the lead role in Legally Blonde, okay? This was a young lady who definitely took care of her hair, was definitely a fashion person, okay? And uh, cuticle care was one of her hobbies, all right? And uh, really into style and stuff. And so she gets the microphone, and she says, um, I just want to warn you guys, this is kind of silly, but I'd like to share it with you. And she goes, a few weeks ago, I straightened my hair, and 
I'm listening and thinking, it sounds like she's about to give a testimony about her hair, and that can't be because that's kind of really trivial. Like, that's not all that big of a deal. We're ministers, for crying out loud, training to give sacrificially for the rest of our lives. We've got brothers and sisters in other countries who are giving their lives to do what we're going to get paid to do at some point. I'm thinking about all of the suffering in the world, and it sounds like this young lady is going to talk about a prayer request involving her hair. And I'm listening, because I'm slow to speak, slow to get angry is the goal, okay? And I'm listening, and as she continues, it becomes more and more clear that it is exactly about her hair. Like she says, it wasn't coming back, the curls were coming back, and I was starting to get worried, and so I prayed about it, and I just, and she has tears in her eyes at this point, which calmed me the heck down a little bit, all right? Um... But she goes, the Lord brought my curls back, and I just think it's so cool that God cares about my curls. And like I said, I am going to bed at night feeling guilty that I have enough food to eat in this country. I'm thinking about all of the prosperity gospel preachers in the United States that are taking money to fly private jets, and I'm irritated with this type of uh, concern about something so unimportant when she needs to go and give self-sacrificially in ministry. I'm getting irritated, and... Thankfully, the Holy Spirit, you know, coaches us and lets us know when we're screwing up. And so in the middle of that, I remember thinking, I can't believe I'm working with someone who's going to give a testimony about their hair being straightened, all right? This is kind of frustrating. And then immediately, uh, the Lord, I believe, reminded me of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, uh, the number of hairs on our heads are counted, He has these accounted for. He knows how many hairs are on the head of each person, and it's not too much of a stretch to think that he knows when they're curling and when they're not, right? What that verse says is that God loves you more than you do. He cares about you more than you can care. He's got more ability to love you than we do. I don't know how many hairs on my head because I can't count that many, all right? He's got it on file. And this is truly important to realize that what he values us for is not our preferences or our style, or our interest, or our ability to serve in a certain way, Jesus loves us, that's why we're important. It's not because of what we're producing. And this is extremely important if we're going to be able to live the joy-filled life that actually ministers to people. What I was trying to do desperately was to say, my life is going to be meaningful if I produce. I'm serious about the kingdom. Are you hair person, Right? And thankfully, the Lord's just not going to let that continue in my life. You're valuable because Jesus loves you. And as humiliating as that is, because we're bought into a system of, but I've done this, I've done this, I've created this, I did this for this person, that is the definition of works righteousness, which God abhors, right? And so, it's kind of a humbling moment to realize you're totally doing what the religious leaders did that Jesus fought against, okay? Second, calm down with my daughter over there, all right? Just mind your own business. But then third, um, I realized that, like, I'm not gonna be in a place to minister to people who do hair, right? They won't let me in the door looking like this, okay? The Kardashians aren't gonna care what I think about what Dallas Willard said about, you know, living as a Christian, right? We have different gifts, we have access to different places, And we can't do this alone. The mission that God has is going to require each of us in our circles of influence to minister to the people that we have relational credibility with, and none of us can go everywhere. Like those hobbies, those interests, those gifts are different for a reason, so we can reach a wide variety of people. So I think uh, it's helpful to think about after all this when we understand that our true identity comes from Jesus, not from the things we think make us important, 
And this way of evaluating people by comparison is deeply flawed for so many reasons. I think it helps to get to the point where we say, why is it that humans are so obsessed with status in the first place? Like, why is this such a deeply entrenched motive that we probably don't even realize is running us most of the time? And I think that the answer is that what we're really looking for is love. We've got this mask of status, we've got these mask of impressive things, resumes and whatever else we enjoy, but underneath it, what we're truly looking for is the love that is so powerful that only God could meet it. That's what's going on here. Uh, the philosopher Alan Debaton says that when you see a guy driving a Ferrari, he really wants you to like him, right? This is the point of so many status symbols. I know someone out there really does appreciate the car they drive, but so much of what we do is to prove I am worthy, I am important, but underneath that, what we're really looking for is the love that God has for us and wants to make us alive with. Uh, so I'm going to end with this. Um, this quote's really helped me when it comes to taking Jesus' identity for me and for my neighbor seriously. Um, Dallas Willard says that a lot of people think that it's a miracle that God loves them besides all the sin, besides all our failures. We just assume, I can't believe he loves me despite all that I've done. And Dallas Willard says, that's not a miracle. It would be a miracle if God didn't love you because God is love, right? The reason we're important is because he's chosen to love us. It's within his character. We're guests in his universe, and that's what makes us who we are most deeply. Thank you for joining us for the teaching here at the Cross Loganville. Let me encourage you to access our website, thecrossloganville.org. Tons of information. Uh, we'll answer many of your questions. Contact us via email info at thecrossloganville.org or you can call us at 770-554-3322. God bless you. Make it a great day.